Loved ones, I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to the scripture passage you will consider this morning from Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 40. Hear now his word. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves, two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law as it required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servants for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, the light, the revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow up and up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew up and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. So far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here we are, loved ones, the day after Christmas. The carols and the jingles are already fading away on the radio stations. Soon the lights and decorations will be put back into their boxes and into the attics or closets of our homes. So the big celebration is over. And all of that can leave us with a wrong idea. The idea that Christmas is just this heartwarming story about the birth of a religious leader. That is not the case at all. And this passage here shows us that very clearly. The celebration of Christmas doesn't make sense without celebrating all that Christ did after he came and arrived, after he was born. Without celebrating what Christ came to do for us in his humanity, Christmas is really not all that significant. We must see the entirety of what Christ came to fulfill together to rightly celebrate Christmas and what it means for us. We've seen together that the Son of God humbled himself in this amazing way by taking on our human nature, becoming a man in here. 
we see that he goes even further in that descent of humility, not only becoming a man, but becoming a man under the law, to fulfill the law of God as our representative, and to then eventually be condemned in our place on the cross, to liberate us from the condemnation of God's law that we all rightfully deserve by violating his commands time and time again. We'll see that God himself came under his own law, that he was cut and consecrated for service to God, and he was also cherished by faith, by those who were waiting for the Messiah. And those will be our three points this morning. He came under the law, he was cut and consecrated for service, and he was cherished by faith. But first we see and consider that he came under the law. And this is incredible. Think about this. The lawgiver himself is coming under his own law. The full weight of the law that he gave to Israel at Mount Sinai is here placed upon the shoulders of this infant child. The Apostle Paul, he refers to this when he says in Galatians 4, which we read earlier, when the set time had come and was fulfilled, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's what we see happening here being born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And this is an emphasis in this passage that we just read from Luke, that the Son of God was born of a woman, yes, and born under the law. We see that first by him receiving the sign of circumcision. He was, in a sense, putting onto his neck the full yoke of the law of God, to fulfill every part of it. To fulfill all of God's law for us. As Jesus later said, I came not to abolish the law of God, but to fulfill it. And here we see him doing that from the very beginning, the eighth day after he was born. So for what purpose? Well, Paul even said it there. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. He didn't do this reluctantly, not begrudgingly. He did this not only out of obligation, he did this out of love, for the purpose of redeeming sinners like you and like me, and to validate the adoption papers, so to speak, that we, who are sinners, might become sons and daughters of God himself. It's at this time, this time of his circumcision, when he came under the law and his commands, that he was also named Jesus, given that name that the angel Gabriel had said that he would be called Yeshua, which in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. Because, as Matthew says, he was sent to save his people from their sins. How would he do that work? Well, we see him beginning that work here by coming under the law as our representative. He came as our substitute, as our champion. And so here, Christians, we see the Son of God beginning to fulfill all righteousness, not only for himself, but for you, to legally represent you and to lovingly redeem you from the very beginning. This is staggering for us to consider God himself entering into the very story that he was writing and unfolding and orchestrating, and he took no shortcuts. To salvation, he didn't take an easy path. No, he took the hardest and most humble path imaginable. He came under his own 
law. And think of this, this is not only the moral law stuff, this is the full mosaic law that he's coming under. In a sense, the moral law of God, it's a reflection of his own character, his own being, his essence. And so the Son of God has always lived according to his own nature, according to that moral law. Because he is very God and cannot do what is contrary to his nature. But here we see the Son of God coming not only under the moral law, but under that Mosaic law. All the civil and ceremonial laws that were given to his people, Israel. These were the laws that were given to a broken and rebellious people, a people that were in need of purification in order to be protected from the holy presence of God that dwelt in their midst. And so we see his, his love going deeper here for us. Not only did God travel down the glorious mountaintops of his own sphere of eternal existence to come into the dark valley of this broken creation as a man. He did that in his incarnation. But also we see here the lawgiver himself coming down and coming under the law, under his own law for us as a Man. Have you ever seen that show where CEOs of big companies are kind of stoop down in the show in each episode to assume the position of a regular employee in their company? And the CEO disguises himself as a typical worker and then does the job of whatever that position is for some hours working alongside other employees of themselves, right? These are their employees. And they're talking about their company, they're talking about the experience of what, it, what it's like to work there. And the CEOs in this time, they usually learn uh, sympathy for those who are underneath them, and also they gain understanding. Well here, by comparison, is God himself, the CEO of all things, our creator God. We find him stooping down to become a true member of one living species, of his own creation. This is remarkable. Unlike that show, this is not a disguise, right? This is not a disguise that God the Son has taken upon himself. He was not just clothed in human appearance. God the Son truly became a human, taking that physical biology, that life from Mary, becoming a true descendant of Adam for us. Not only that, this is not just a lowly position that God the Son assumed for just a few hours. No, he took it on for years, 33 years about. And then he took it up again after death when he was raised from the dead, taking up our humanity and lifting it in glory. We see the great humility and love God, all that he did to descend and stoop down mercy and grace to love us. He decided to love us, to forgive us, to redeem us, to adopt us, and this was the only way to do it. Paul says in Galatians 2.21 that if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You see, righteousness could not be gained by our obedience to the law of God. Christ had to come and obey it for us because we ourselves are not able to gain and secure the righteousness that God demands from us by our own religious obedience, not by our own striving, not by our own repentance. It is impossible. 
Christ came to die in our place because we could not get rid of the lawful condemnation that we deserve for the wages of sin is death. He came under the law because otherwise the law of God would have crushed each and every one of us. All of us. Christ came under the law for us because due to our sinful nature, that law, God's perfect law, is too heavy, too hard for us to keep. And the problem is not with God's law. Let's be clear about that. It is with us, and that's exactly Paul's point in another passage in Romans 7, where he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, in me, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, that is the law, to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So what is Paul saying in that passage in Romans 7? He's saying that when sinners come into contact with the law of God, instead of producing righteousness, which leads to life, it actually produces sin which leads to death. And it's not the fault. The fault lies not with the law, but with us and our sinful nature. You see, this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. We are not trying to gain our own righteousness in life by our own obedience, according to the law of God. Instead, we realize that we cannot do that. Instead, we look to him by faith who came under the law to gain righteousness and life for us, Jesus Christ. And God invites us now to come under his grace because he came under the law for us. Remember, we deserve to be crushed by the weight of God's righteous law, but instead, instead he came to be our righteousness. Lift us out of that condemnation that we so deserve. And this was to fulfill his prophecies of old. Years, years before, by his prophet Jeremiah, God said this. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Referring to the Messiah. And he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days... Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You see, God himself, the Lord God himself came to be our righteousness. He is not ashamed, not ashamed to be affiliated with us sinners. He has come under the law. To fulfill all righteousness so that we can lay claim to him by faith as our righteousness. Our perfect righteousness. Not in ourselves, but all in Christ and what he has done for us. He is our boast in this life. Jesus is our claim to fame, our hope and our stay. We boast not in our own obedience, not in our own moral integrity, not in our repentance, not in our faith, but in Jesus Christ, who is 
the Lord our righteousness. So how would Jesus fulfill all righteousness for us under the law? Well, the whole course of his life here is pictured for us in this passage by circumcision and his consecration for service as the firstborn at the temple. And that will be our second point, that he was cut and consecrated for holy service. The law that Jesus came under, remember, was for a people that needed purification. To purify and cleanse them from their sin and impure ways. Why? In order to protect them from the holy God who dwelt in their midst. And the two parts of the law that are mentioned here in this text, they exemplify that for us. Circumcision and consecration. You know, in circumcision, we find that God himself comes under the knife. In a sense, kind of like a surgeon coming under the knife and being operated upon himself. God himself in humanity, shedding his blood on the eighth day. What was circumcision? A sign of what does this point to? Well, the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham, you remember, back in Genesis, and his sons. It's a sign and mark of that covenant, and it meant that God had set them apart from all the other nations of the world, and that they were safe with God. They could dwell and walk with God in safety and peace. The bloody sign of circumcision was the cutting off of that foreskin of Abraham's sons, so that the bloody condemnation that they deserved would not cut them fully down in judgment. So how did God permit Abraham and his children, sinners, to walk in safety with him who is the holy, righteous one? God himself. The author of Hebrews says, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Offenses need to be avenged. Justice must be had. Wrongs need to be made right. And only blood can atone for sins. You know, Abraham, he probably thought, knowing this, thinking of this, that the blood of circumcision was enough to atone for his sins and the sins of his children. And maybe Abraham thought, instead of God cutting us down as we deserve, he's only cut off a part of us in his mercy, a sign of his grace and mercy. But God, perhaps in a sense, was challenging Abraham in his thinking when he told him to sacrifice his own beloved son, Isaac. Not just cutting off a part of him, but cutting him down entirely in the sacrifice. And Abraham took him to the mountain. Remember the story? He placed his own son on the altar and raised his knife to strike down and sacrifice his own son. And God said, stop. And behold, there Abraham saw stuck in the thicket a ram, a ram to be sacrificed. The Lord had provided a substitute, a sacrifice whose blood would be shed in the place of his own son. We see then that Abraham's circumcision pointed forward to these great truths that we deserve to be cut off entirely in God's righteous anger, but instead he has spared us. He has spared Abraham, he has spared Isaac, his son, he has spared us with the promise to provide the right substitute, the one who would shed his blood in our place. And so Christians, behold, the Lamb of God, they are circumcised, under the law, under the knife, for you. But more than that, see that this is the ultimate ram who is stuck 
in the thickets. Behold your substitute, the one who came to die in your place for your sins. Even though we too deserve to be cut off from God's judgment, he has stopped his hand from striking us down. Why? Because he struck down his own son on the cross in our place. God has provided the only sacrifice that can fully atone for all our sins, his own son. But behold the Lamb of God. Christians, you secretly fear that you will be cut out from God's judgment. Maybe as you think of your own sins, one in particular, or the many sins all collectively, maybe you think that God's hand is raised to strike you down in your sin. Behold, God has provided. He has provided not a ram, but his own beloved son, who was brought under the knife for you. Not a ram stuck in the thicket of a bush, but his own son, eventually nailed to a tree for you to shed his blood, to make full atonement for all your sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptizer would later say. Now this image of the Lamb of God here points us to another part of the law of God that Jesus came to fulfill, and that is that dedication or his consecration there at the temple. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph, they brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem in order to fulfill the commandment of the law, and Luke is referring to two rituals prescribed for Israel in the books of the law, consecration of the firstborn males the Lord, and also the 30-day purification ritual for a mother after birth. So she'd have to stay pure and set apart for 33 days and then bring a sacrifice uh, for cleansing and purification. That consecration, that first part, consecration of the firstborn male, was meant to remind the Israelites of a former act of redemption that God had performed for them in Egypt, how God had spared them in the last and terrible plague that fell upon Egypt. Kids, you remember which was that last and terrible plague? The angel of the Lord that came through and struck down the, the firstborns, all those who did not have the blood of the lamb shed and, and smeared upon the, the doorposts of the houses, all those young boys in Egypt were not covered with the blood of the lambs, but put to death in that great and terrible plague. But, but, the angel of the Lord passed over in mercy and grace those that had the blood there, painted upon their doorposts. Why? Because death had already visited that household with the substitute, and therefore they were spared. And because they were spared, from God's judgment, according to God's law, which is what we see fulfilled here, those firstborn sons were always to be consecrated to God as holy, to serve Him for their lives. And so we see here Jesus consecrated, the firstborn son of Mary, consecrated in holy service to God. But we also see here the Son of God consecrated for holy sacrifice. Not just holy service as a man, but holy sacrifice. Because 30 years later, God's judgment would not pass over Jesus in mercy, but instead visit on the cross and 
cut him down in our place. And here, the consecration of Jesus in the temple is the true Passover lamb of God being prepared for sacrifice. The one whose blood atones for all our sins. God spares our lives because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, where he says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. You see, Christian, you who believe in Jesus, trust in him, the threat of judgment and condemnation no longer hangs over you, as if in the night God will strike you down. No, why? Because Jesus, Paul is saying, is the one who died in your place. He was condemned for you to remove that condemnation both now and forevermore. We are spared because he was consecrated not only for holy service, but for holy sacrifice. To be the sacrifice for your sins, your rebellion, your wicked ways. And perhaps that's why the sacrifice here of the pair of doves, or the two young pigeons, is also mentioned pointing forward to the fact that we need cleansing. In order to cleanse and purify Mary of the bloody ordeal of her birth, a sacrifice was offered in accordance with the law of these pair of doves, or young pigeons, which was the, the lowest, and for the lowest class, those who were impoverished, who could not afford a, a greater, more costly sacrifice. But behind this is the greater reality that in order for us to be cleansed, and purified from all of our sins and all our iniquities, Christ was offered as a sacrifice for us. His blood has cleansed us, made us whiter than the snow. His suffering has deleted every evil thought, word, and deed from your history. Think of that. Think of that. Your own history is a record standing against you. He's deleted all of it, all of those evil deeds, past, present, all gone, all washed away by the blood of Christ. But once you see how the Son of God came to fulfill all righteousness for you by his circumcision and his consecration for holy sacrifice, coming under the law, fulfilling it all. How are we to respond? And that's our last point, cherished by faith. In this passage here, we find two God-fearing individuals at the temple that were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, Simeon and Anna. And Luke wants us to see how Jesus came to fulfill the temple and its purpose, and how these two figures properly responded in faith. We can think of it in this way, God's holy presence was with Israel for many years, long residing in the temple, within those four walls of the temple. And the temple itself was not meant to protect the majestic God who dwelt within it, who stooped down to meet with little sinful Israel. No, the temple walls were not protecting God, no. Those thick walls are like the thick walls of a power plant 
that are meant to keep people on the outside safe from the creation and formation of nuclear power within it. So the temple walls, the curtains, and the bloody sacrifices were meant to keep evil humans on the outside safe from the righteous holiness and anger of God on the inside as he is supremely good and just and must punish sin. And therefore those walls of the temple were keeping people on the outside safe. God's presence used to be on the inside, but now, here in this text, in this passage, we see the human infant named Jesus who's brought to the temple. And he's not just in humanity. This is the true temple of God in whom the whole deity dwells by. This is the God-man, fully God, fully human. As John says, the Word who is God became flesh and tabernacled among us. He templed among us when he walked on earth. And so here is God himself arriving at the very temple that was designed and created and built to worship him and render service to him. Yet here is God's presence showing up on the outside, enshrined by the humanity of Christ. And here we see the fulfillment of the law and the temple because the true temple of God was the infant child Christ, and he would accomplish, Christ would accomplish in his body what the stone temple and all those bloody sacrifices never could fully accomplish. It is not the walls of the temple built with stone that ultimately keep us safe from God's holy presence, his righteous anger and justice. It is the body of Christ that keeps us safe from God's holy, righteous, Anger. It is not the blood of animals that maintains God's mercy and smile of love upon us. It is the blood of Christ. On the tree, he took the blows and torments of justice that we deserve for our crimes against humanity and our crimes against our Creator. It is the temple, the true temple, Jesus Christ, who keeps us safe and maintains God's smiling favor and love upon us. And this is huge as we think about this. It shows us that we do not look to Jesus only as an example to follow. This is not a story about a religious leader showing up at the temple, showing us the way we ought to obey God and try and make peace with God on our own. No, this is the Prince of Peace himself who is our peace. He isn't showing us the way to climb up to God. He himself is the way. This isn't a prophet teaching us how to find God. This is God come to find us. Both Simeon and Anna who were waiting at the temple. They realized this and they rejoiced in this. They cherished the Christ who came for them. And they had the privilege to see him and hold him. We don't have the time to consider all that they said here. But these are the kind of people that God's salvation has come to. People like Simeon, who by faith waited for the promise of God to come to him at the close. Because he personally received a promise from God, it's somewhat mysterious, we don't know when, by the Holy Spirit, he was told that he would see the face of the Messiah before he died. Well, when he received Christ, he received that consolation. He received in Christ the comfort that all of his prior obedience to the law of God never afforded him. 
He received in Christ a peace that the temple itself and all its bloody sacrifice could not give him. And so we see that he transferred all of his hope, all of his faith to this little child and what he would do for the whole world, both for Jews and for Gentiles. And so too, loved ones, let us wait in faith for the fulfillment of God's promises and believe that at the close after death, we too, after death, will behold the face of our Messiah, Christ. So transfer all of your hope away from your religious obedience, away from your own repentance, and transfer your hope into the obedience of Christ and what He has done for us. Don't trust in your religiosity, but trust in the righteousness of Christ. And you too, like Simeon, will have your consolation both in this life and in a life to come, and you will be able to die in peace, peace with God through Christ. Is that you? Are you waiting with eager anticipation for the moment when your faith will turn to sight? Have you transferred all your hope away from yourself to trust in Christ alone? You know, in finances, it's often said that we should not have all of our eggs in one basket, right? You're supposed to diversify. In case something goes wrong, you have your money and your resources spread out. But in faith, loved ones, God wants us to have all of our eggs in one basket, exclusively in Christ and in Him alone. Like Simeon, bang on Christ with all of your hope, because His righteousness will never fail us. Also consider Anna. She was left destitute in this world, destitute of hope and help. She had been a widow for many years, and here she is at the age of 84, very old for those days, and the world would have seen her and did see her as empty and perhaps useless, but here we find her, not empty, not useless, but full of hope, full of hope and help in God and used by God as well. Anna realized that she had nothing in this life and so she lived there at the temple waiting for the salvation that God would bring. And here as a prophetess, God used her to witness and testify the confirmation that that long-promised redemption had arrived in the person of Christ. So is that you this morning? Do you find yourself with not much in this world, but holding on to Christ and what He has done for you by faith? And if that is true, if that is you, then like Anna, you have found the best thing, all you ever need, all you want, full redemption. It will never fail you. If so, like Anna, we ought to do what she did here and spread the word with others, share it with others about the Son of God who has come to bring us redemption. Lastly, loved ones, look at the last verse in our text where Luke concludes saying this, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew, became strong, and was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Luke makes the point here to show us that they did everything that was required by the law of God. Remember, he came under the law for us. He was circumcised and consecrated for holy service and ultimately for holy sacrifice in order that he might rightly be called the Lord our righteousness. He has come to give us himself, to give us his own righteousness. And so, 
at the close of this year, loved ones, let us rejoice and boast in Him who is our righteousness. Not our own obedience, no. But Jesus Christ, Him who was obedient for us, for death on the cross. We thank you, Father God, for sending your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the law, to redeem us from the curse that stood against us for having violated all your commands, to fulfill all righteousness for us in our place, and moreover, to now, having been forgiven by his blood, shed in our place, be called your own beloved children, adopted and heirs of the kingdom of God. We rejoice that this reality, this identity is ours, that we receive it by faith alone, in Christ alone. Lord, we ask that if anyone here today, young or old, has not fully believed and trusted in Christ, putting all their hope and stay in Him, that you would grant them this, in this very moment the repentance and faith that you alone can give by your Holy Spirit. Work it into each and every one of our hearts that we might trust in Him more and more and find all of our consolation, all redemption, all of our hope and boast in Christ and the Lord who is our righteousness. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name.